When I was very young, like before kindergarten, I lived across the street from a kid named Matt. Matt was two years older than I was, and still is, I think. Um, and, uh, and I admired him. I looked up to him. Uh, and he often used that against me. Uh, he did not always have my best interest in mind. Uh, for example, uh, there were many times that my mom would instruct me to go out and play, but to stay in the yard. And so I'd go and play in our little swing set or whatever, and then Matt would come out of his house and play in his yard. And then he'd say, Brian, come, o- come on over and play with me. And I'd say, no, I have to stay here. Oh, come on, I'll give you a piece of candy. So, of course, <laughs> candy. Uh, so I'd cross the street, only to find out that he did not have candy for me. He just wanted to wrestle me to the ground and beat me up and feel strong. <laughs> so then I would cry and cross the street to go back home. And then my mom would say, what happened? And I'd say, I went across the street and Matt beat me up. And she'd say, I told you to stay in the yard. So, <laughs> so then I got in trouble for not obeying. So it was not a good thing. But, uh, but I think that that little experience between me and Matt, I guess Matt and me, um, is a helpful picture of what Isaiah is talking about as he speaks to the people of Judah in Isaiah chapter 2 and 3. He calls out to God's people and says, you admire these things in the world. You've given yourself to all these things in the world. But they are all counterfeit. And it makes you feel like you're special and important. But when God's glory is revealed, you're going to see that all that stuff vanishes and you're just left broken and separated from the one who loves you. So we're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 2 and 3 today. Uh, Our text uh, is just a few verses in chapter 2 that I think summarizes a lot of what Isaiah talks about in the two chapters. I believe in the Pew Bibles it's on page 587, but the words will be on the screen as well. Isaiah chapter 2, starting at verse 5. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. You, Lord, have abandoned your people. The descendants of Jacob, they are full of superstitions from the east and practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses There's no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So people will be brought low, and everyone humbled. Do not forgive them. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning, and we hear these hard words, 
and we want to be encouraged, but we also want to hear your truth, and so we invite you to speak to us. Lord, I too am a broken man who stands before you, and I, I confess that to you, and I pray that the, the, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, and I pray that as you speak through your word, we would hear your voice and be drawn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we start this journey through Isaiah, I think it's helpful and important that we take some time just to acknowledge the challenge of understanding these biblical texts that were written long ago in different cultures and different languages and trying to understand them and apply them in our lives here today. And it's true all the time, but I think that gets accentuated a little bit when we're studying Old Testament prophecy. Uh, And... First of all, I just want to acknowledge God's word is active and alive and it does what it's supposed to do. And so we can trust it. We can read God's word and we know it's going to speak to us and reveal truth to us and draw us to him uh, and expose our sin and do all that stuff. And it, it, there's an aspect of that that's simple. But there's also an aspect that's, that suggests that we need to take it seriously and learn how to study God's word and apply it to us. So, so this picture that you can't totally see super clearly maybe, is an illustration of the interpretive journey. And what it reminds us is that these words embedded in Scripture for us were written to specific people in a specific historical context. And so in order to understand what it says, in order to understand the principles, and at first we have to understand what it meant, uh, as the authors of this suggest, in their town. So it was given to them. What did it mean? What was going on in their situation? What did it mean for them? And then we have to think, all right, so how wide is the divide? Like, what were the cultural differences between what they were experiencing and what we experienced? What are the language differences? Uh, What side of the the covenant are we on? Um, What specific situations were happening then that were being addressed in this text? Uh, so that we can identify the biblical principles that are rock solid and stand the test of time, and then bring those principles that were given then. You can't even really see that laser, but there is one. I'm really doing something. Um, To bring that into our context and then learn how to apply the truths of Scripture to our lives. So I think sometimes we try to make it as simple as possible, and that can lead us to two ends of the continuum. Sometimes we sit down and read Scripture and think, well, it was written to God's people, and we're God's people, and so everything it says should apply to me exactly as I read it, and I can read the words in English and understand what they mean. And so everything is kind of—everything God said is just kind of the same for them and me. But that's an oversimplification and not quite right. But also, we could sit down and say, well, this was a judgment given to the people of Judah, and they weren't even, they didn't even know Jesus yet. Uh, And so, and they weren't really following God, but I'm following Jesus, and I'm trying to do my best, and I really, I love Jesus, and I care about him. And so this is a judgment given to people who are different than me. So what can I learn about God as he reacts to people different than me and kind of separate ourselves from the text. But that also is an 
simplification and not super helpful. And so we want to uh, wrestle with what the text says, find the biblical principles, and apply it to us. Now this passage from Isaiah chapter 2 and 3 in particular, I think is, simplifies it for us a little bit because these ideas are repeated in the New Testament by Jesus as he like talks about what's, what would it profit a person to gain the whole world yet forfeit their souls. We heard it read in our call to worship in Romans 12 as the Apostle Paul says, do not conform to the ways of this world, to the ways of the age, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let the Holy Spirit change you, transform you. Let the word of God make you new. And even as we go to Revelation chapter 3, the letter that's written to the church in Laodicea, again addresses God's people as having fallen in love with the world and forgotten their first love of Christ. And so these ideas that are embedded in this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 2 and 3 are continued throughout Scripture, even into the New Testament. So we can be confident that this isn't just a word for the people of Judah in ancient times, but it's also just a, it speaks to a human condition that we need to hear and wrestle through ourselves. So the first thing we recognize in this text is that God's people are in danger because they've turned to human wisdom, human wealth, and power, and idols. A couple other things just about some hard language in this passage. Uh, and I don't want to make the hard language in this uh, challenging prophecy go away too easily. Um, but in Isaiah 2.6, it says, You, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. And um, there's, you know, if Isaiah is the Shakespeare of Scripture, we know there's uh, a lot of imagery, there's a lot of complexity into the way it's written, and it's written in Hebrew, and the Hebrew language works differently than the English language. Uh, and it's important for us to recognize that God doesn't, like Jesus promised he'd be with us always to the end of the age, right? So he's not going to like just go, but it does speak to the truth that we can abandon God. We can fall in love with the world, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago as well. So much so that we harden our hearts to the God who made us on purpose and saves us. And so it's important that we recognize that if we're straying, that God will let us go if that's what we choose to do. Um, and then at the very end of our text this morning, uh, at the end of verse 9, it says, So the people will be brought low and everyone humbled. Do not forgive them. And it's important that we recognize that in Hebrew, uh, the imperative uh, can also, it's not only a command, but it can also show what is going to come. This assumed reality as a result. And so it, it's highlighting for us, it's, you know, 
like the Psalms, there are times that we call out and say, don't forgive those people. They were terrible to me, and they should pay for it. You know, we see that in the Psalms. This is a situation where God's word is inviting us to see the seriousness of our sin and depravity. That is basically saying, this situation is very serious, that it shouldn't really be forgiven. And if it continues, it will be punished. And so those are just a couple words and phrases in the text that might jump out at you that I thought were important to address. But as we turn our attention back to this principle, God's people are in danger. Uh, Obviously, Isaiah is saying you are in danger of exile and really feeling separated and alone from the God who made you on purpose and loves you and wants to rescue you. Uh, We can be in danger of hardening our hearts, of giving our lives and energy to things that won't last. Uh, And Isaiah identifies three key places that, that that's happening for God's people that I think still affect us today. That we give ourselves to human wisdom, where we might make sense of the world apart from Scripture. Uh, Things that just get embedded into the way we think and live just because we're surrounded by messages that say things like, just do what feels right. You got to look out for number one. There are lots of things about self-care that are important that I think we can learn from, but the worship of ourselves, the elevation of our, our self in our current society today is, is a danger and it's not biblical. Uh, you know, that whole look out for number one. Uh, and even be your authentic self, okay? Like, it's true, God made us uniquely and he wants to, us to live that out, but we're also broken and sinful people and there are authentic things to us that are offensive to God and not even good for us. And so we want to live our lives authentically before the Lord and let him speak into it. So those are some ways that human wisdom might affect us. Uh, Then we also see the people struggling with human wealth and power. And Isaiah says, the land is full of riches, It's full of chariots and horses, which are symbols of wealth and power as well. Um, And we too need to be aware of how we might seek earthly power in order to do godly good, right? And it's easy for us to convince ourselves that if we just find a way give earthly power to God's people or to God's purposes, that everything will get better. But God is not relying on earthly power or earthly wisdom to accomplish his goals. And oftentimes, as we look through the history of God's people, God's people almost never had power in the world, and God has done great and mighty things despite that. But there are times that we can convince ourselves that, uh, you know, through our elections uh, or political stuff, uh, that we need 
something in particular to happen in order for God's will to be done in the world. Um, and it's true, we want to be engaged in that stuff uh, as God's people, but we don't want to create an idol of it, out of it, and convince ourselves that God needs earthly power in our government in order to do what he wants to do for the sake of the gospel. Okay? Um, and then Isaiah says uh, that the land is full of idols. Now, we probably don't have a lot of actual carved idols laying around our houses. Uh, we probably don't have a lot of statues of, to Buddha or anything like that. But idols are still something that's very real for us. We make idols out of so many things. Um, and sometimes, uh, and, and I think the descriptions of uh, their land is full of idols, they bow down to their, the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. And I think that describes a lot of American culture. We worship the things that we can do. We worship the things that we produce. We are excited about pursuing the proof of our power to manipulate the world around us and to accomplish our goals. Um, how do I know if something is an idol? Because sometimes we make idols out of really good things. Well, I think in my life, my idols are exposed by stress. If I'm really stressed about manage, managing them, guarding and protecting them, or appeasing them, then it's probably an idol. Because my relationship with God does not lead me to that kind of stress. It used to when I thought God just wanted to smack me all the time. But in a right understanding of the law and the gospel, knowing that he's going to tell me the truth, but he's already accomplished everything he desires for me in Jesus and wants to invite me close to him, that does not produce stress. It produces freedom for me to say, Lord, I know this is not good, and I'm sorry about that. Please help me leave that behind and fall into you. So stress and control, just kind of that management, like uh, kind of the superstitions of an athlete. Um, you know, I had to put my clothes on in the right order every time just to make sure. And it never actually produced consistency in my running, but I believed that if I did it wrong, that that would definitely throw me off, right? So athletes have, well, some athletes at least have all kinds of superstitions, and I, I think that kind of just control, like we need to appease the gods and, and, and just do these things the right way, uh, that is a form of idolatry. We're, we're leaning into things of the world, things that we make, things other than God. Because when we're trusting in God, again, it's not stressful. Uh, and, and we don't need it to work out exactly according to our picture, even though we want it to. Because when we're in a right relationship with God, we know that we can say in faith, the Lord gave and the Lord take a, took away. Praise be the name of the Lord.
But when it's an idol, we can't release our grip on it. We can't let it go. We need to do whatever we can to guard and protect it. Sometimes our idols are revealed in the kind of bartering that we do. Uh, that's one of the ways that we look for control and um, manipulation is we uh, are always trying to trade this for that, okay? And, and we might even have conversations with God about it. Lord, if you just do this, then I'll do all these other things. Like just, just bless this and then I'll, I'll, I'll change, I'll do this. I promise I'll never do this again. Um, and that is a kind of earthly wisdom, earthly management that's, that reveals that we have an idol in front of us. I mean, it might be honest too. Like we're idol factories and, and sometimes that is part of my conversation. In fact, just the other day we were praying for something uh, at a staff meeting, I think, and I realized that I was telling God how he should solve the problem, and I just needed to say, I'm sorry, Lord, you know better than I do. I don't need to solve it for you, but I just want to give this to you and just say it matters, and we want to see what you're going to do. But yeah, I, I can also, I can always find a strategy that God should use in order to accomplish the things that I think we need. Um, human wisdom idols. One of the serious ways that we see idols uh, played out in this passage as we read further on, especially in chapter 3, we see that we can create idols out of other people. That we put people on these pedestals that they don't belong on. The cult of personality, uh, whether uh, they're just successful and we aspire to be like them because uh, they kind of show us what we could possibly be if we put our minds to it. Um, sometimes it's because they have power, influence, and wealth, and we just want to be in their neighborhood and have them like us and be their friends so we can drop their name, and hopefully that influence will carry into our lives. Um, in... Uh, and so we can create idols out of people and look for leaders who will kind of serve the idols that we have. And uh, Isaiah, in chapter 3, verse 6, and then in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, uh, give us, paint us pictures of this kind of desperate need to find leaders that we can just follow and that we can lift up and say, Oh, look, they have the power now. Um, in chapter 3, verse 6, it, it just is kind of this desperation and chaos of just like throwing a cloak on somebody and saying, okay, you've got the cloak, now you're the leader. So just use the power and go do it. And in chapter 4, verse 1, it's a little bit more of a depressing scene uh, as the people have been worn down. And it, it says that there will be one man, so kind of the picture is so many men will have died in war that there will be one man and seven women will give themselves to him for like no commitment just so that they won't be alone. Because in their culture, it would have been devastating to be left alone, right? Uh, no attachment to property, wealth. Uh, and so... So it's this picture that, of desperation that just says, 
I'm so in need, I'm so desperate, and I'm so uncertain what's going to happen that I'll just latch onto you, and you can take me wherever you're going to go because you have strength and power that I don't have. And so we want to be really careful, uh, whether it's through fame or uh, some other kind of power and leadership, uh, what draws us to people and how much uh, we give of ourselves to them. It's a warning for us in this text. So God's people are in danger because they've given themselves to the ways of the world. Uh, And we also see that God's glory reveals earthly treasures as counterfeit. So there are all these images of height. Uh, There are tall trees and people trying to be tall. And there's all these things in high places up on the mountain throughout these chapters that show their earthly wealth, their earthly power, their earthly wisdom has led them to just puff themselves up to these precipices, uh, these places that make them feel secure and powerful. But then it says, when God comes, in his glory, his glory will reveal that all the things that they trusted in were just like flash paper. And it's just going to be leaving them with ashes. It describes the people running from these places of heights down to the lowest depths, even digging holes in the ground and finding themselves in caves. Taking all their treasures that they trusted in so much and leaving them to the bats and the moles, which apparently were some of the lowest on the totem pole of unclean animals. To say all these things, all these things that we treasured, all these things that we put our hope in, when God comes and reveals his true glory, we're going to recognize that we are not powerful, not strong, and we've given ourselves to things that just vanish and have no eternal meaning. And God's people run and hide from the glory of the Lord, the one who made them on purpose and loves them and wants to rescue them. Because in their sin and in their human thinking, they just don't know what else to do but to be afraid. And so they run into caves and they're brought low. They experience the truth of how far they are from God. They thought all these things that they gave them to, their, their great wisdom and their great wealth and power and the, the idols that they had around them, all these things that they've built with their hands, these treasures they've invested in, the thought they thought would make them secure, puffed them up and gave them this false security. And then God shows up and all those things fall apart. There's a fascinating passage uh, at the beginning of Isaiah 3, uh, the first few verses. It says, See now the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, all supplies of food and all supplies of water. The hero and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty 
and the man of rank, the counselor, skilled craftsman, and clever enchanter. It says that God is going to come and remove all the things that they valued, all the things that they trusted in, the things, even simple basic needs like water, but a huge list of all the people that they might have turned to for leadership and guidance, even enchanters. And I, I know we don't like to talk about COVID anymore, but I, I just need to bring it up for a little bit because I think in our human wisdom, we've twisted it into something different than God intended to use it for. And I think this passage opens us up to look at it differently. A lot of times as we look back at the COVID season, we tend to lament about either the government trying to overtake its power and authority in our lives, or we lament about how people didn't care better for each other and sacrifice what they wanted for the greater good. There are lots of other things that we talk about. Those are kind of continuums, but ends of the continuum. But early on in the COVID, whatever it was, uh, we had this sense that there was spiritual significance to what we were experiencing. That as we didn't have the opportunity to go to work, as our resources were pinched, that we couldn't even get toilet paper um, for a while, uh, or at least we were afraid we wouldn't. Um, as things shut down and we had to isolate, there were maybe things, you know, certainly we can argue and debate whether all those things were wise and made sense. But what we saw and experienced it, and we talked about it early on, that God must be doing something here to reveal how powerless we really are when we're so proud of all the things that we can do. And I think once we started arguing with each other about how we were supposed to respond to this pandemic, we lost sight of the fact that God had something in mind that may have had nothing to do with the things that we were arguing about. I can't think of another time in my life that it was more obvious that in all our human wisdom and power, we were left powerless. And we didn't only see it in my home, we saw it in my community, and we saw it happen across the globe. That a tiny little virus that none of us can even see infected the way we do daily life. And it was a picture for us that we are not as great and strong as we think we are. And our reaction to it Draw, drew us to appeal to human wisdom, human power, and we tried to take control and say, it should be the way, we should solve it the way I want to. When instead, we were supposed to turn to the Lord and say, Lord, what can we do but turn to you? And I think 
that as we walk through Isaiah, we're going to have opportunities to hear that word again and again. And so I, I, I just think it's important that as we continue to try to forget it or have conversations about it, assuming things, that it's important for us as God's people to look at it as an example of God coming and taking away all the things we trusted in so that we might wake up and see that we need him. The verses in chapter 2 before we read are stand out in contrast between what we saw in chapter 1 and what we see in chapters 2 and 3. It's this kind of blissful description of what God wants to do, what's possible when we trust him. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And then the rest of chapters 2 and 3 are a picture of the depravity that affect even God's people. As we trust in earthly wisdom, earthly power, and the things that we make with our hands, our idols. But this promise in Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, is true. It's actually the picture that God wants to invite his people into. The confidence of knowing that whatever chaos erupts in the world, that in the end, it will be revealed that only God's mountain stands strong. And when all the things of the world, the wisdom and the power and the wealth and all those things are revealed for the counterfeits that they are, then we will see clearly the path to the mountain of the Lord and we will know that that's where we need to be. That is the center for peace and understanding where we, we stop fighting with each other and we experience peace with God and with each other. Where his wisdom and his truth, the only actual truth, defines reality for all of us. And so God speaks this word of prophecy, this hard word of saying, be careful not to conform to the ways of the world. Don't trust human wisdom and human power and the things that you can build with your hands and the things that you can accomplish as human beings. Trust instead and trust alone 
in the God who is God over all things, who made you on purpose, and sent a Savior to rescue you. We learn, and we're, we're reminded throughout Scripture that the path to eternal success is not what we can accomplish here, but what we humbly leave at the foot of the cross and say, God, only you are great. And we need you. The NIV application commentary uh, describes humility. True humility is um, refusing to put oneself in the place of God. Instead of building all this resume of strength and power around us, say, look at all the things I've done. Look who I am. Look at the good I accomplish. Whatever it is, whatever we might be tempted to put our trust in. Instead of doing that and trying to puff ourselves up, instead we go before the Lord, the one who is right and good and true and strong, and say, Lord, I am not like you. I know that in myself I'm not enough. I'm so tempted by all these counterfeit things around me. But Lord, you make me worthy because you love me and rescue me in Jesus. Now the people of Isaiah didn't know how the Messiah would come and what he would say and what he would accomplish, but they were hoping and they were looking forward to it, or at least they were called to. For us, as we apply these principles to our lives, we already know that Jesus has come and accomplished it and declared it is finished. And so as we come before the Lord, we can admit, confess, repent because we know what God has done for us. He told us the truth. He knows that our sin consumes us and we're so driven by it and we wander all the time. We see it all through the history of God's people. None of us escapes it. But Jesus has come and he sets us free and he makes us new, and he calls us to a new life. Which is why we don't want to be conformed to the ways of our old life anymore, but we want to be transformed into being children of God. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today and these are hard words, but they're true. And so we're drawn to them. We're drawn to what you would say to us because we know that you are good and righteous and holy and loving and that you, Lord Jesus, are our Redeemer. And so we pray that you would speak these words into us, that you would reveal the things that we've found comfort in that are, are just counterfeits in the world that you'd expose them, that we might give them to you and find the truth in you. We want to find ourselves and our security in you and in you alone. So we pray that you would move in us, that you would change us, that you would convict us, 
and that you would set us free. In Jesus' name, amen.